2: fresh for everyone. Personology is a production of
3: iHeartRadio.
4: Harry Houdini is still today the most famous of magicians and escape artists. A man who was an original innovator of the area of escapism as a form of skill and entertainment. He invented numerous feats of self-liberation and the intricate apparatus to perform them. Secrets of how they were done remain even today. What drove Houdini to become such a successful escapist? I'm Dr. Gail Saltz, and you're listening to Personology. Joining me today are Ben Bolin and Noel Brown hosts at the iHeart Podcast, Ridiculous History, a show that dives into some of the weirdest stories from across the span of human civilization. (music) Harry Houdini was born in 1874, not as Harry Houdini, but as Eric Weiss. And he was not from Appleton, Wisconsin, as he portrayed himself. Not the American apple pie guy and magician of his later public persona, Because actually, he was born in Budapest to poor Jewish parents. His is a story of classic immigrant escape. But from humble origins, Houdini became world renowned as a magician and an escape artist. I think the piece about escapism is especially important. Not just because of what he did, but because he escaped the life that he was going to have. And I think that theme of needing to escape is something that plagued him, if you will, for his entire life in a way.
5: And I also love your notion of escapism because not only, you know, is he known as a, as a great escape artist, like you said, he was able to escape this life. But the idea of escapism is like being entertained. And, and that's a, a big part of what he, his legacy is as well as being a fantastic entertainer.
4: He escaped his life in Budapest partially because it was actually a life of poverty. He was born into a pretty destitute family. His father was Mayor Samuel Weiss. He put himself forward as a rabbi and actually Eric, his son, Harry said, you know, I'm the son of a rabbi, but he really wasn't even a rabbi. I mean, like he didn't go to rabbinical school. There was no training. He's sort of a self-invented rabbi. He was really by trade a soap maker.
5: And to be clear, also not a mayor of anything, right? That was his not name. Not a mayor of okay, anything. Got not,
4: it. Yeah. Not, not a mayor, not actually a rabbi. He was a guy just trying to make it and, and really not making it, who brought his family to the U.S., to try to have a better life, and probably you guys can testify to this, Appleton, Wisconsin in 1874 or thereabouts was not exactly a, a hubbub or like a swanky place to live. It was a place you picked because, you know, you could afford to live there because there was really kind of nothing there.
2: Uh, I guess we should also add here that part of the engine propelling the family to Wisconsin is the anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe at the time. For the historical context, this is 1874. This is not a friendly time uh, for the Jewish population of Eastern Europe. There's a lot of oppression, of course, uh, scads of racism in in almost every aspect of life. So going from a place where you're actively persecuted to a place that, okay, maybe it's not the Big Apple. Maybe it's not New York. Maybe it's just Appleton.
4: Even in Appleton, it wasn't that great to be a Jew. I mean, even even still, maybe it was better than in Europe, but there weren't very many of them. And the reason actually his father was able to be a rabbi was that essentially there were a few Jewish families there and they, they just kind of needed someone to like lead the way. Interestingly, the father never learned to speak English. He spoke only Hebrew and German, making it hard for them to actually have a whole lot of success. To some degree, that may have propelled Eric to feel that he probably at some point would need to escape from even this escape because, you know, they weren't going to go very far. They were really struggling to make it. And his mother, Cecilia, he was hugely attached to. I mean, you look up Mama's Boy and really Harry Houdini kind of exemplifies a mama's boy in the sense that, you know, even, even later when he marries, he talks about the two girls in his life, his favorite two girls. And it's always his mother. And to some degree, his, his wife is kind of second fiddle there, but he watched her struggle. Yeah. in poverty as well. And he really wanted to make life better for his whole family. He leaves home and tries to do whatever he can to figure out how to make some money. Eric is short, stout, strong, athletic, actually pretty smart. At age nine, he tries to become a trapeze artist. He has some idea of flying through the air, doing tricks, entertaining people, and making this a means of... Making a living.
2: Oh, that's right, right. Eric, Prince of the Air, I believe, was the title he was using. So this is fascinating, too. There's a parallel between Houdini and his father at this time because Mayer began calling himself a rabbi. He was sort of a self-appointed or self-taught rabbi in his opinion. And around this time, uh, Houdini is also becoming a magician by teaching himself, right? He was a pretty voracious reader from what I understand.
4: Yes. He was a voracious reader. He taught himself by reading, but he also was very physical. Like he participated in track and gymnastics. And so it was almost like a melding. This is a very important theme as well. Escapism, but also he's really highly creative. For example, around this time when he's Eric Prince of the Air, there's a magician, a French magician named Robert Houdin, who is making his way and probably one of the first or earlier magicians that's getting any sort of notice. You may wonder, where did Eric Weiss get the idea to change his name to Harry Houdini? Eric Houdini has already put this idea in Eric's head. Here he is being a trapeze artist. Here he is putting himself forward as Prince of the Air. And he starts to take all these disparate ideas and put them together as who does he want to be? Is this the point
5: that Eric runs off and joins the circus? I imagine it made his father very proud.
4: At about age 12, in those days, you know, again, you didn't have money. You're trying to make things work. We don't really know what happened to him. But he resurfaces at age 13 in New York City, meets his father, who has come there, and they've got nothing. Like, they're living in a boarding house, essentially. They're— trying to work like in a necktie factory. And his younger brother joins in too. He has a younger brother, Theodore, that's called Dash. And the brothers come together and say, let's try to be an act. Let's try to be the brothers. He's very driven at this point by wanting to show his mother to some degree that he can succeed and wanting to have her not keep living in poverty. And it is around this time that, yes, he's like, okay, I'm going to join the circus again, as you mentioned, not something that would make a rabbi father terribly happy, but, but a rabbi father who ha- who's not making it as a rabbi didn't necessarily have a lot of say in the matter. He did
2: something that I was unfamiliar with because I'm not a you know an expert on stage magicians. He actually purchased magic tricks, which is not a thing I knew you could do. You can buy magic tricks from other magicians. So he started investing in magic early on as well, or at least by the time they were the brothers Houdini.
4: Very entrepreneurial. Clearly this was part of, you know, his makeup is how could he essentially be a businessman even as he was being a magician, um, I didn't know that he bought magic tricks, but that does sound very astutely entrepreneurial of him since he couldn't constantly be the only one doing everything. But it was at about this time. like he's around twenty. He's doing circus acts. and by circus acts, let's be clear. he's there's no Barnum and Bailey. there's no <laughs> there's no big Apple Circus. This is like, you know, in people's glorified backyards or unused space in a neighborhood. These aren't big circuses, but he is meeting all of these curious people who also participate in circus acts. And that's actually how he met his wife, Bess, who was only 18. She was one of a group of sisters who were doing an act. They called themselves the Flora Sisters. He married her after three weeks, pretty quick. Bess was Catholic, came from a Catholic family. Actually for Bess, this was sad because her mother actually never spoke to her again, essentially, was so distraught and angry that she married a Jew. That was essentially the end of her relationship with her parents, but she was absolutely crazy about Eric, who's now Harry, and he is clearly quite besotted with her, and she became his assistant, actually. So that is where he started with, I'm doing tricks, and this is my,
2: quote, beautiful assistant. And that's got a lot of stage appeal, right? People enjoy seeing that. They sort of understand that format. I believe she was also singing as part of the act, which surprised me because, you know, usually... When we think of a magician's assistant, they're holding things. They're bringing props on and off stage. Getting
5: like, sawed in half, potentially. Sure. Right?
2: Yeah, or appearing to. Hopefully now, appearing oh, to.
5: Hopefully appearing to. So this is a question. Um, is Would this have been one of the early examples of the, like a, an attractive female assistant? Or was that kind of a, a, a tried and true um, part of the showmanship at this point?
4: Well, actually, there was some of that already going on. Um, The departure for Bess, which is interesting, is that, and this probably had something to do with the fact that, as I said, she came from a Catholic family and that Harry was from a Jewish family and that none of them felt that she should be displaying her wares, as it were. So, in fact, even though she was his assistant, she did not, like some of the other assistants who were bubbling up, dress in a glamorous way. She did not dress in a revealing way. It was not supposed to be super eye candy. It was really that she was assisting him in sort of part of the intensity of the magic or the entertainment or the tricks. And in fact, if you look at photos of her, she's in pretty conservative garb and almost like athletically conservative for those days. But Harry, he does recognize exactly what you guys are referring to, that people wanna see shocking things and he understands that at a at a gut level. And so he starts coming into, before the act, he appears with virtually no clothes on to demonstrate, for example, I've got no keys in my pockets or I'm not keeping anything on my person that could help me get out of this escape. That's ostensibly what it's for. But in fact, he understands on a certain level being exhibitionistic in all that that means is something that will draw people in and get them to spend money to see this, want to see this, because people by nature are voyeuristic. He understood that.
2: I don't want to objectify the guy too much, but he's in shape. You know, he cuts a handsome figure. There's a hubba hubba to this.
4: And he liked that. That was important to him. He wanted to be hubba hubba. And part of upping the ante, I guess, in his tricks was to be admired and to be remembered, which later will become very important in what drives him in this direction up and up and up to do more and more.
2: This is interesting, too, because when you're talking about how he's escalating stuff, how he's being exhibitionistic, it's not just a matter of check out my sweet pecs. He's also doing some kind of social engineering or publicity stunts when he approaches police stations and says, "Okay, guys, try to handcuff me and let's do it in public and see what happens. I thought that was interesting because when you're talking about how he is always doggedly seeking ways to escalate the show and the experience, he started taking it off of the stage. I don't know if you can go to police stations and do that today.
5: No, I wouldn't think so. But, I mean, you know, he, he definitely took it more into the realm of, like, uh, exhibitionism and almost like a weird hybrid of, of magic and performance art where he'd, you know, hang himself from cranes and do these death-defying escapes and put himself... Physically in harm's way. I think that was, the, that was the big kicker there.
2: And more importantly, put himself in the local newspaper before his actual show happened, right?
4: 100%. He was a master marketer of himself, which was really like PR before there was PR. That wasn't a field, and branding wasn't a thing. So before that even existed in, in some sort of concretized way, he understood that, and that's exactly what he was doing. That he was marketing himself... And he understood a lot of things about human nature. And maybe because he understood this about himself, that we are voyeurs, we like sadomasochism. You know, we like to see they got to the edge of death and then made it somehow. Or we like to see people to some degree harming themselves or like little forms of of violence and hold our breath. And to some degree, both of those sadism and masochism, those are like normal human drives. And whether he understood that about himself and therefore understood about other people or just understood that other people would be drawn in by that. He played to all of those psychological mechanisms of the public. That worked for him in spades. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll dive into Houdini's conflict with purported purveyors of the supernatural.
2: He was always sort of fighting against being associated with spiritualism, which was on the rise concurrently with his career. I wonder if there's some insight we can look at uh, as to why he had such a deep antagonism toward this this kind of stuff.
5: That's right. We actually did an episode on Ridiculous History about his uh, ghost detective, Rose Mackenberg, who he'd, he'd actually send her ahead of him on his tour stops to debunk these spiritualists or mediums or whatnot. The amount of money that was you know, spent on mediums in those days was staggering. Like, you know, with inflation, it would have been just like millions and millions of dollars. Uh, And, you know, of course, very much uh, a hoax, you know, almost nine times out of, I mean, I don't know, like, depending on where you stand, I would say maybe 10 times out of 10. But (laughs) um, in the, You know, in the context of the story, it was all about him coming to town and then exposing these people as frauds with the homework that his assistant had done. And that was another kind of brilliant marketing ploy if you think about it.
6: I am willing to profit the sum of $1,000 to anyone who can prove that it is possible to obtain air.
2: But I would argue it's deeper than that. Oh, it, 100%. It is, it is yes. marketing, yes. But, and it is PR, and, the, and he is a genius with this. But his antagonism really takes a, a serious turn, a, a harder edge after the death of his mother.
4: Well, there are two issues in terms of his the intensity of his feeling about spiritualism and what did he have to do about it. He was really an athlete. And his tricks weren't just tricks. They were athletic feats. It wasn't like a total sleight of hand. He learned from people in the circus how to use his toes. From people who were in the circus who had no arms, how to use his toes so he could put a key Between two toes, these were real feats of flexibility, of strength, of holding his breath, of, you know, using body parts that aren't usually used like that, dislocating things. So in other words, what he was doing for him was real. There
6: is nothing supernatural about it.
4: As opposed to what he felt that the spiritualists were doing, which was truly a trick. And it was an affront to him. But in addition, he became very conflicted and revved up about this because his mother was the singular most important person to him. The single most loved person, probably more than his wife. And he was really devastated at the loss of her. And the idea being dangled that she could be somewhere, he could reconnect with her, must have been a huge Draw And to see all of the other people who also had longings like he did, believe they were connected or spend all their money in trying to be connected, must have toyed with how he felt about this whole movement.
5: That's right. I kind of forgot that it started with him having hope and being fascinated by it as a means to reconnecting and then feeling that betrayal, I imagine, or just realizing that it was all just kind of smoke and mirrors.
4: To be duped in this way for a man like this was actually really enraging. Anybody who worked with him, he made sign an agreement. He demanded complete loyalty. Like in the days before anybody did such things, he had people signing documents that they would not speak of anything.
2: NDAs, right?
4: He was the early, earliest days of that. Um, so he had a paranoia about him of being betrayed, Another primer, if you think about it, for, you know, going in and having the hope that he was going to connect with his mother and actually believing that this could be so and then feeling duped.
2: He's working from personal grief, right? And he is working to also exercise critical thinking and skepticism in a way that he likely considered a public service, right? He was helping people, uh, but also he was helping himself because you know, in the mind of the American public, and the global public even, uh, someone who is an escape artist or doing stage magic is often lumped in with uh, someone who's practicing as a medium or a, a clairvoyant of some sort. So he's not just doing what he thinks is the right thing. There is that ulterior motive of great publicity But then there's this third motive, which is differentiating himself in the marketplace. You know what I mean? I love that you point out that these are athletic feats. And I lit up when I heard you at the very beginning say he was kind of a mama's boy because I I don't think a lot of people know how much personal, emotional heft went into his vendetta against spiritualism and also, I think he profited from this, uh, maybe not necessarily financially, but in the eye of the public. He profited from this, not just because he was involved in ghost hunting or ghost busting, but because he was also just on his own, really, genuinely, amazingly talented. And gosh, he's, he's only 26 when he starts touring Europe.
4: And another thing to think about in terms of, you know, the spirituals say, yes, we're going to be able to reach your mother. And then he knows that even though they're saying, oh, it's her and she's speaking this way and she's saying these things, which he knows she, she never would do. So he knows this is false. At about the same time, it starts dawning on him. How is he going to achieve immortality? He's been very driven on, on fame and maybe even had a thought that, you know, if you can speak to the dead and that they're still there, that essentially you don't really die. And it, it's possible that this experience of being told she's there and then realizing you're you're being duped and she's not there. And in fact, death is quite final and there will be no crossing the boundary. Whether that may have revved up his need to figure out how to achieve enough fame or more fame to have immortality in a certain way. I wonder this because it's at about the same time that he starts doing other things like film. He starts traveling around. He starts doing things that aren't about his physical prowess, but are seem more directed toward being so famous that you're remembered. A legacy, right? Yes, but a big legacy, <laughs> like making you immortal in some way. That started happening at about the time that he really became disillusioned and angry about spiritualism. And that became a big driver for him in in the things that he started doing at that point. And to some degree, even in the risks that he started taking, which will prove to be a big deal in terms of his ultimate demise. Let's take a break here. Be right back.
0: Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartburn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with smart metabolic burn from Brain MD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring, with access to over six million active hourly workers.
2: heard us allude to some of Houdini's specific tricks or acts. Uh, he is the father of escapism, uh, someone who can legitimately say they are an escapeologist. When he began his career, he was doing sort of card tricks, coin tricks, that kind of stuff. But as he became this internationally famous uh, escapologist or magician, his tricks were things like being able to get out of handcuffs, being able to get out of straitjackets. This is where we see the danger levels increasing at a precipitous and then ultimately, I believe, a fatal rate.
4: You know, I think that his early life— of essentially escaping Budapest and then escaping Appleton and essentially leaving, escaping his family of poverty and going out on his own. These psychological themes probably had something to do with his choice of direction that he would become an escapist when there wasn't such a thing, right? This, I lock myself in this tank, in this water, in this river, I'm lowered by a crane, in the river, in the box, and then I have to get out. I have to escape in psychological parlance who would say it was overdetermined that he would choose and move in that direction and choose such a thing. To this day, magicians don't know, no one knows how he made an elephant disappear. Many of the things, it's ultimately been understood how he did what he did, and they were very athletic doings, but at least it's known. He made an elephant disappear Nobody can figure out how he did that.
5: What was the setup for that trick from a stage perspective?
2: Houdini performs this vanishing elephant act at the Hippodrome Theater in New York because understandably, they need a big room, right? This has the world's largest stage at the time. All he needs is a huge cabinet, a team of 12 other people and an elephant. The audience was able to see inside the cabinet. You'd be able to look at it and tell that there wasn't, you know, an easy exit or hidden door or something. But then once they closed the cabinet and reopened it, boom, the five-ton, eight-foot-tall elephant is gone. Insane.
4: Today, if we saw that, we would say insane. I think even more insane is the idea that Magicians today aren't, don't know how Houdini pulled that off, how that actually happened, which is fascinating, which is very different from the dramas that he would create around other sorts of tricks or, you know, escape performances that he did. Where, as you point out, he would come to town, generate this tremendous publicity by going to the police station and saying, strip me naked put me in the cell, do your best. And then they would all leave. And then he would A, be out having escaped and he would have moved other prisoners around from different cell to different cell. It would be astonishing in some short period of time how he'd clearly opened many cells. And then that would razz up everybody in the town who would then of course want to pay for a ticket to see whatever he was going to do on stage. You
2: know, when we think of the Chinese water torture cell.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, in introducing my original invention, the water torture cell, I'll go.
2: All of these things can function as sort of a, a metaphor for his own genesis and origin story.
4: They all have an element of torture in them. He's putting himself in a torturous situation. So whether he's being held inside water, the water torture cell, whether he's being hung upside down in a straitjacket, they all have this theme of torture in them. There was something in him, I think, that felt tortured actually in some way. There are a lot of things that we could posit as to why torture resonated so much for him. But that theme really runs across all of his work.
5: Where do you think it stemmed from?
4: A lot of performers who need the kind of accolades and admiration that Harry Houdini seemed to need do actually have underneath that tremendous insecurity. Maybe not self-loathing, but like a real doubting as to whether they measure up. I mean, here is a man who was Jewish. He was 5'4", didn't have money. When they came to Wisconsin, it wasn't good to be a Jew. There's a power in taking over the persecution yourself.
2: And Houdini also tried his hand at acting as well, which is a much less dangerous way to get that attention uh, that you were craving as the fourth of six children.
4: I think those were mostly disappointments to him. He, he tried, he hung out with like Chaplin. He tried to be with the celebrities, be in the films and use that to be more revered, be more famous, be more immortal. But it didn't really work out for him. It may have only fueled his, his insecurity further, to be honest. Many people in acting in general struggle with a lot of narcissism, not as a dirty word, but narcissism meaning actual insecurity and needing to create things around you to try to make you feel more special because you actually feel less special. He continued to be willing to take certain risks to keep pursuing this. And ultimately that is essentially what killed him. So he used to have this um, thing where he would tell people that they could punch him in the stomach because he has abs of steel. He was incredibly fit. He was incredibly athletic. Part of his deal was to say, you can hit me and you're going to be amazed. You know, you talk about somebody insecure. What do they have to say? I'm the strongest. I'm the best. I'm the toughest. That was a big shtick of his. And unfortunately, it ultimately didn't work out very well for him. He was a, going to be doing a performance. Apparently he wasn't feeling that great. He was he was laying down a McGill student was was with him, was sketching him, actually. He and another student said, hey, we understand that you have abs of steel. Can we give you a pop? And he said, oh, sure, fine. But hadn't prepared himself in the way that I guess he normally did. The student hit him a couple of times really hard in the abdomen. He clearly had pain. It wasn't a nothing for him. But much in his usual stoic and the show must go on and I am the toughest style, he went on, he did the show, he clearly was having a lot of pain. He continued through the week saying he didn't need medical attention, he would just get through it, it would be okay. And by the time he did seek medical care, which was about a week later, he was diagnosed as having late stage appendicitis, which essentially means he had a ruptured appendix and This was in the day and age of no antibiotics. So even though they did two surgeries to try to save him with no antibiotics, ultimately that was the end of his life. He died. It's unclear whether the ruptured appendix is something that was true, true, and unrelated to getting socked in the stomach or whether something was brewing and getting punched, you know, put him over the edge. But at the end of the day, it really is was his style of I'm the toughest that unfortunately undid him.
2: This leads us to a tragic posthumous uh, note, at least for me, in the story of Houdini. It's that after he does ultimately pass away, for years after uh, his, his death in 1926, uh, his surviving spouse, Bess, attempts to contact him through
5: seances.
4: Oh my God, that is sad. That is sad. And it was really a promise that she made really to him that she would try on the anniversary of his death, which actually, if you think about it, this is pretty crazy, right? He died on Halloween, which is weird in and of its own, right? So every Halloween, Bess would host a seance and try to reach him. She did stop 10 years later having had no success, but she did try for 10 years, something that he he really wanted and is kind of amazing even more when you think about the husband-wife relationship because where do you think that Harry was buried? Ooh. Next to his mama. Okay, yep. In, in, <laughs> in a Jewish cemetery. In a Jewish cemetery where, P.S., his wife could not be buried because she was Catholic.
2: She never converted, huh?
4: That wasn't really a thing. You had to be by blood Jew. And she could not be with him, but that was his choice to be buried next to his mother, Jewish cemetery. And yet she tried for for 10 years to reconnect to Harry, but sadly could not.
5: I think it's interesting that his kind of the same swagger and bravado that, like, made him a great showman and made him willing to take all these risks is ultimately what kind of undid him. Ultimately, you know, he was just human after all, I guess.
4: Essentially, I mean, he achieved really what he wanted, which was a certain infamy, right? Today, if we talk about magicians, he would be number one, I think, top of the list, even though we have amazing magicians around today. But everybody remembers Harry Houdini And that was clearly incredibly important to him. And I think, in fairness, deserved. He did create something that really didn't exist before him. Escapism wasn't a thing. It was new, what he made. For that, he does go down in history. And that was his goal. He's probably
2: one of the most famous people who's done the, come on, bro, hit me move in (laughs) history. And uh, while while it didn't work out, he has such a legacy. People who don't speak English or, you know, have any interest in magic know the name Harry Houdini. So I, I agree with you. I believe that ultimately, uh, while imperfect, he was successful in fighting against his mortality.
4: He really created something that um, we all, in a way, benefit from. The idea that one could escape the jaws of death. Well, that wraps up this episode. I want to thank Ben Bolin and Noel Brown for joining me on this episode. If you like what you heard, you should check out their show, Ridiculous History. It's got some great stories from history, and it's a lot of fun. If you want more from me, you can check out my book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius, or tweet me at Dr. Gail Salts. Thanks for listening.
2: Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. Editing, music, and mixing by Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With elbow Grease, Fresh Installs, Exclusions apply.
6: Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety?